You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie back and hello, Jordan. Hi, Annie. It's really good to be back in the studio. Um, Yeah, I had a bit too long of a holiday and moving house on top of it has just sort of compounded everything and I really miss the time in the studio. So Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really nice. It, it is. It's great to be back on and we hope all you people out there are, are thinking the same. Mm. Um, we woke up this morning or, or perhaps yesterday with incredible news. ICANN has succeeded in, in its uh, push to make... Uh, nuclear weapons illegal worldwide. Mm, it's, it's a huge victory. Huge. Yeah, because I think uh, you, you obviously want to keep your ears open for the radioactive show this week. I think they'll do it probably some strong justice, um, being, being you know you know an offshoot from ICANN themselves. But um, it's not just a victory for um, you know uh, pacifists generally. It, it's also a victory for people who are anti-nuclear energy, because obviously those waste products are used to uh, help create nuclear warheads and related weapons. So yeah, this is a this is a huge victory well, it's across a big, the board. It's a victory uh, for yeah. the world. Oh, it's great! It's great. Um, and yeah, look, there's been obviously a lot that we've been, you know, hoping to chat with everyone today about. Um, did you want to go through some of uh, what you've got planned for today, Annie? Oh, um, yeah, oh, yeah, you bossy boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yes, yes, we're going to uh, follow up uh, the Peter's dispute. There were the Peter's ice cream, mm. uh, a very um, all these uh, companies uh, off the. Um, the the race the uh, running blocks trying to reduce people's wages and conditions mm. and peter's uh which has, is run by uh, a company that's got uh, uh by um a lot of uh, casual labor long term casual labor mm. uh and they're trying to cut their hourly wa- rate now i as my daughter said she doesn't doesn't think that people have stopped eating lots of ice cream during covid <laughs> <laughs> in fact, their sales probably that feels went like up. a personal attack in some respects. Yep. <laughs> but anyway, yep. so um, we've got a chat with Dave Harris yeah. coming up about that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. he's going to. He's a spokesman from uh, the uh, United Workers Union. Mm. We're going to talk to Abs, uh, Absara Sabaratnam. Sabaratnam. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. Who? Uh, uh, she, she was part of a group of people who had a demonstration outside uh, Parliament Place uh, last week uh, for refugees, um, and they were given uh, a citation from the bylaws officers for mm. making too much noise. And this has led people to wonder if the Melbourne City Council is going to suppress people's ability to demonstrate using. Uh, 
uh, a loudspeaker. loudspeaker. Anyway, <laughs> we're going to have a talk to her about that, and uh, we're also going to give a have a chat about uh, the uh, outcomes. Just recently, uh, all those people in the Park Hotel have been let out. The refugees have finally been released, except. It's on a very short leash. Mm. They've only given been given three weeks to depart. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, we're going to talk about that and uh, see how that's going and what uh, you can find out about it. We're going to move on to uh, talk, uh, do a little doff our hats to uh, the Tanaminaway Malboy Hini. Um, commemoration on mm. the 20th. Mm. And, uh, Invasion Day coming <clears throat> around the corner, corner of course. Yes, yep. on Tuesday. Yep. And uh, then we're going to talk to Mac- Max Ogden about his autobiography, A Long View from the Left. All right, see, I've done it all the way through. Yes, but most definitely. But you've got some more interesting things than just uh, telling everybody about what we're going to be doing. Well, yes, of course. Oh, so, so the other I've, thing is, of course. Kevin is going to be back. For all those people yes. who sit on the edge of their seat, seats to listen to Kevin, he is on the mend and he is going to go and do his annual lawn adventure, which mm. anybody who listens to this program and knows Kevin may already know about. And then he'll be back on February the 3rd. Yeah, so not there too far go. away. Pencil it in. Yeah, about two, maybe three weeks. Nothing too big. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll try and make up for some of the satire. The man is irreplaceable, but, you know, we, we can pitch in a joke every once in a while, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Although a lot of this is a, is a joke in itself in some respects. Go um, on, tell us. So I, uh, over the holidays, I tried to curate um, a couple of things that were jumping out at my attention. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of media coverage was centered on the uh, the coup the inauguration, a lot of U.S. politics in general. And as a result, a lot of union issues really struggled to get to the surface um, amongst all this media coverage, which was blotting out a lot of really fascinating small issues. A a Trump cheering, if you ask me. You talk about wasting our space. I mean, you can Mm. just ignore the man, you know. So one of the the things that did catch my attention was uh, about 10 days ago, British gas workers decided that they would go on strike from uh, midnight on 10 days ago for five days. Um, It was basically in response to working constantly through the pandemic, um, including, uh, you know, receiving deliveries from local food banks at some of these specific workers' outlets. So, you know, they'd go in, collect a food parcel because they didn't have time to get groceries or Tesco's was closed and then go home. And um, I was chatting with uh, one of the members uh, from the uh, Gas Workers Union in Britain uh, who was saying, and I'll, I'll quote here, We were unknowingly having new terms and conditions drawn up behind our backs with a fire and rehire clause built in if we refused. Along with a lot of things, this will mean less holiday and more hours away from my family for no extra pay. Now, if you think about the time period for this, this would have been, what, 10 days ago, so just after New Year's. Um, Now seems to be the squeeze time for a lot of these companies. Um, There was also a bit of a discussion about how it didn't breach any of the front pages of the BBC or on Sky News. And, you know, it gets barely a footnote. Um, This was happening also at the same time as 14 unions collectively decided to demand for a pay rise for the NHS. Um, And this was mostly a lot of ground workers in particular, so looking at nurses who received, you know, quite a lot of media focus and attention because they did a lot of the home testing um, where where the UK had this, you know, terrible uh, test and trace system 
Uh, but it a was private, it was managed at home. A privatized yes. test and trace system yes. run by Serco. Yep. 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 Our yep. mate Serco. Yep. And NHS workers were on the front line of that because they were, you know, run to um, handle a lot of these testing kits. Um, and it's really disappointing because I think it actually speaks to where the UK establishment is about those who have risked their lives so that others may live, not just with, you know, essential um, energy production, like, you know, gas workers, um, but also, you know, nursing. It's it's really insidious. How, how, it is insidious. This business about doing things behind their back mm, mm. and uh, this business about uh, controlling their lives. You will you will accept these conditions or be fired. Mm. So, um, as for the U.S. stuff, um, look, I found a couple of interesting things. The Zapatista movement, uh, which is a uh, anarchist, uh, well, I guess we'll say um, uh, liberated front, is actually sending out a diplomatic service across uh, a lot of Latin America, and they've said that, you know, from from this, they're actually seeking to travel across the world. Um, they did put out a statement regarding this, and um, uh, I do have it here as it's coming through now. Um, yeah, according to the statement, the first stop on the planetary journey will be the European continent for which a Zapatista delegation will set sail from Me- Mexican lands in April of 2021. Um, after journeying through various corners of Europe below and to the left, the EZLN members plan to arrive in Madrid and... Um, that is particularly relevant because um, that is, uh, you know, the supposed conquest of what is today Mexico. Um, but in any case, it's uh, it's a communique that really, really seems to um, emphasize that it's a time for mutual listening. And in Latin America, which has gone through quite a bit of fascist turmoil lately, I think it's going to be an interesting... Um, it's going to be an interesting one to watch coming forward because obviously this delegation is traveling through um, multiple well, it, different borders under COVID. Well, it was, no, it was uh, announced that Biden was going to uh, endorse Guido coming mm-hmm. out of uh, Venezuela. Um, there is an ongoing promotional campaign to imply that, uh, you know, uh, Venezuela can't cope with its own politic, but uh, it which is pretty nasty mm. stuff. Oh, very much so, yeah. Um, and I must say that it's, you know, mm. places like uh, 3CR are the only places where you can actually get genuine information about Venezuela, it would appear to me. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the language programming either. We we really do have quite a lot of shows, um, especially on weekends in particular, that focus very specifically on different sections. I mean, you look at Asia Pacific Currents, which comes on at 9am. It's a a great, Mm. um, you know, 9am today, I should say, uh, is a great example of that. But moving right along, let's um, let's lead, leave with the fabulous Amazon. Oh, yes, of course. So Amazon put out a piece, um, the, the, look, I'll, I won't reference the website because I don't exactly want to send any traffic to it, but if you uh, give a search for do it without dues, you may be able to stumble across it yourself. And they have simply put out a union-busting piece um, entitled 10 Union Facts and FAQs. We want to make sure you and everyone in our BHM1 family knows all they can about unions to make the best decisions for themselves. Um, And so, you know, I thought maybe I'd have a read of this. And some of them range from stupid to very dangerous and insidious. And I think it's a good lesson about, you know, looking for this kind of propaganda and really bringing it into question. 
Um, so, for example, if I can pitch a couple to you, Annie. Um, number nine, will I have to go on strike? A strike is called when the union decides to do so. If a union calls a strike, they expect that you will not go to work, even if you need to keep working to earn money to pay your bills. Unions may even issue fines to employees who try to continue to work. How outrageous! Ten and number ten, the follow-up: If the union calls a strike, will I get paid? If you go on strike, you will not be paid by Amazon, and you will not be eligible for unemployment compensation. So this is a really insidious pitch, right? This is a document that is. Coming straight from Amazon, it's got the same font. It's literally got a giant Amazon logo on the bottom of it,、um, essentially saying, "Oh yeah, we won't pay you if you go on strike." Well, duh. So this is clearly about holding the workers to ransom in some extent, to, to some extent,、um, but it's just driving the point home of it, as if to say. You know, striking will achieve absolutely nothing. When in reality, it's actually very damaging to the business.、Um, but I think in the U.S. it's particularly poignant because、uh, so much of the U.S., because it is densely more capitalist, is transactional. So if you're paying dues to a union, then you're expecting an equal transaction. You're expecting something immediately in return. As opposed to the, you mean it's diametrically opposed to the concept of collective action and building solidarity. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason for why you would do it. In fact, it's quite fascinating because I've been collecting information over this week about uh, uh,、um, the nature of work because、I've, we're going to talk to Max Ogden at the end of the program、mm. because actually that seems to be one of his biggest focuses.、Mm. Um, but and I and I caught a program that、uh, was America in Color, and、uh, on the SBS, and it was fascinating because、uh, it was old、uh, black and white footage that had been colorized, which、mm. of course makes it more、uh, palatable.、Mm. Uh, and it was all focused on the titans of industry, right? Not right. Pe- not pro- not propaganda. Yep.、Um, yeah. Reality history,、mm. but anyway, of course, it was.、Uh, Ford, and it was、uh, Ford, and、uh, and it was the、uh, business about union busting. It was all about union busting, but from the point of view of the titans、mm. of industry.、Mm. Quite fascinating.、Uh, th- but then I started to read other things, like、uh, Ford insisted that he could uh, um, curate people's lives outside、oh, their absolutely. work. Absolutely, yes, no, thoroughly.、Um, yeah, I think it's a rather、um Common reflection that we're but anyway, Amazon—it's like、yeah. Amazon. This guy Be- Bezos is、yep. like a、uh, love child of of Henry Ford. <laughs> yeah, no, most definitely. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just close with one more, which I think was probably the most insidious of the lot.、Um, number two: Will a union provide more job security? And this is great coming into our casual segment. You know, very soon. No, a union cannot create job security or guarantee you will not lose your job. So that's a bit, you know, there's some clever wordplay in there. And Amazon goes on to say, when we work together to improve our business and provide service to our customers, more business is generated, meaning more job security for everyone. <gasps> that's very insidious. <laughs> <laughs> You're on solidarity、It's, breakfast with、oh, Annie and Jordan. Horrid.
G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your dial. And you're with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Dave Harris on the line. G'day, Dave. Hey, How Dave. Are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you both today? Oh, good. Um, Doing solid. <laughs> it's our first day back after a long break, so uh, we're as happy as Larry. Hmm. Good. Happy New Year. Yeah, yeah, you too. Mm. And uh, but you guys down at uh, South East Melbourne, uh, Peter's Ice Cream Production, um, are not as happy as we are in the studio this morning. You're from the United Workers Union. You, do you want to give us an, an outline of what's actually going on? Yeah, sure. So um, we've been negotiating with Peter's Ice Cream in Mulgrave since February of last year. Um, obviously, they've taken a bit longer due to COVID stage four restrictions, all that kind of stuff. But the first offer the company put out for their longer claims is to drop the casuals to $22.50, uh, remove leave loading, um, oh. medical certificate for every absence, and also removal of the flu injection. Okay. Um, they then put out an EBA for voting in April where they actually raised the, list, um, the, the casual rate of pay to $26.95, but a 0% pay increase over the three years. Uh, that got rejected 147 no's to four yeses. Mm. So since April Why did four to people, now, How did four people say yes? <laughs> I, I don't know, and I haven't been able to find out who those four people are to actually understand why they voted yes. But, Devil's advocate, who knows. Um, but please continue, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, so since April to now, so that's easily eight months of negotiating, we've gotten up to 5% over three years through some very tense negotiations, but they still not budge on the twenty six ninety five for the casual road of pay. So that's effectively a five dollar ninety five dollar an hour drop in pay. Um, and the members, the, the full time part time members, they just won't stand for it. Is there still any? Casuals. Is there still any casual loading factored into that? The casual loading is still factored into it. Yeah. So um, the twenty six ninety five still gets twenty five percent. They were on thirty one seventy. Um, but the company's argument is oh, other companies do it, why can't we? So they can't, they haven't at any point given me any numbers on the cost saving effects and the benefits to the company when I've asked for it. Um, they can't even justify that that would give the 5% for the, the full timers. Um, and, and the problem is they're casuals, they've got casuals there who have worked there for 17 years mm. who, have one, who have one to go full time. So the casuals find it very hard to go full time. Because they're just packers. Mm. Um, and when I say just packers, that's a very hard job, labour intensive. Um, but the company don't see that as a, a full time position. So these people are, are casuals for a long time at this place. So to cut their rate of pay by $6 an hour, it's just insulting. Yeah, it's interesting. Especially, that... 
Oh, go on. Yeah. Oh, no, no, continue. No, I was going to say, uh, the uh, Morrison government's uh, IR laws are all about doing things like uh, not uh, recognising uh, people who were casual, called casuals, mm. de- uh, people who were wrongly classified as casuals because they're working, r- uh, r- you know, predictable hours mm. and over particular times. And uh, they're slashing uh, that because they don't want all these companies. These companies don't want to have to pay people. They don't want to pay for what they're actually uh, uh, getting from people, effectively. Is that a situation here? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. They're, They're looking at how they can cut costs without actually improving anything else, and they're attacking the casuals. So the easiest thing for companies to do in this day and age is to go straight after the casuals. Well, that's, um, and this is a case in point. Yeah, that's why they have the, they want this sort of insecure arrangement. What I can't get over is that there's all this language around, the, you know, this federal government and all their kind of cronies always acting like they're there for jobs. And we've just been talking about uh, Amazon, where the guy is talking about how, you know, unions can't... Uh, um, you know, ensure that you get a uh, get paid, and you they can't ensure that you've got a secure job. But of course, you know your members can see it, you know, right up close that uh, the these uh, employers that they've been working for for you know seventeen years, they can't either. No, that's right. I mean, if you if you're a casual for seventeen years. Worst case scenario, you should be on a, a permanent part-time roster. Absolutely. Um, you know, you should have some kind of security in a job you've given 17 years of your life to. Um, and, and that's the problem. I, I do know the delegates at Peters who are doing an amazing job have been pushing for a lot of these casuals to be made permanent, and the company just doesn't want to hear it. However, so I... in saying that, mm. to try to get the 2695 over the line, last meeting they said, we'll make six people permanent. And it's like, so you've got the positions there, you just don't want to do it. So to get a 2695 across the line, they're trying to divide the casuals by saying, we'll make six people out of a pool of 60 casuals, six people permanent. So they have the full-time positions for these casuals. So tell me, is there a new... um, What's happened? You know, it's like a murder mystery. You know, what what happened that causes this uh, management to do this? Have they changed or is there some ideological approach going on? No, that's what I understand. It's the same management as the last EBA. Um, again, they had to take action last EBA as well. Um, why they're doing it, like I said, I just think it's an easy option for companies. Um, so Peter's Ice Cream now owned by Frenary, who are a, a French company, um, own a lot of ice cream manufacturing plants around the world. So I'm not sure if it's a model that they're bringing in from overseas, but um, I think here in Australia, we're we're just not going to cop that. Um, Insecure work's not good. No one likes it. Everyone's stressed when you're in a casual position. Mm. Um, And we, I think we just want to stop and we're not going to, the members of PISA especially aren't going to take them being attacked on the rate of pay. So you you had your your first uh, um, demonstration on Friday. What are the plans? Uh, at this stage, we've we've just got an indefinite overtime ban planned. Uh, we meet with the company next Friday. 
to see where they're at, and we'll see what comes from that meeting. Um, I, I can't believe we've actually had to get to this point after nearly a year of negotiating. We've had to do an industrial action uh, indefinite overtime ban. Um, but we'll see what that does. So hopefully it'll see the company will see that even though we've told them for so long we will not tolerate the casuals being the rate of pay drops and they've just not listened. Hopefully now they'll start listening. Because it's, um, it's, it's a real tug-of-war negotiation, as it was described in a book I just read about uh, boxing and dancing. <laughs> it, it really is. It's, um, yeah, you sort of throw jabs the whole way through and look at, knock out punch to get what you want. Um, probably the easiest way to put it. Um, but in this case, like the, the members aren't being greedy. They're not asking for ridiculous sums. They've asked mm. for a paltry 2.5% per year when they're doing record numbers. So production is up through the roof. They're doing record numbers, and they've asked for a measly 2.5%. Mm. Um, and just don't touch the casual. So it's not... Even the members aren't being greedy. They're not saying we want hundreds of dollars each week increase. It's like just give us a very um, respectable increase on our pay. The, the other thing is, do you think that there could be a flow-on effect... Um, if your members were to uh, crumple, uh, I mean, do you think that this this is something that uh, employers across the board in Australia are hoping to be able to do? Oh, I think it is. Uh, during meetings, uh, Peter's have mentioned other companies, other ice cream companies that have given um, like 4% pay increases over three years. And, and their response has been, they did it, why can't we? So, yeah, Peter's are watching all the other ice cream Manufacturers and they're trying to copy exactly what they did, and yeah, the flow-on effect is huge because yeah, companies have the they did it. Why can't we? The, the really interesting thing about this thing is, of course, that there's been all this mantra about you know during COVID that we're all doing it together. Your your members were working during COVID, mm. and um, the. As you said, they're actually selling a lot of uh, ice cream <laughs> at the moment. Oh, they are. So they're not losing money. Yeah, the share um, price has really jumped over and that it, time period. Yeah, and yeah. they haven't changed. So this idea that's been pushed around that, you know, people have to tighten their belts uh, so that business can, you know, recover, it's a lot of crock, isn't it? It, it is. Like, even I've negotiated all through... Uh, stage four restrictions in Melbourne. Every company pulled out the same thing. Oh, um, sales are down. It's like, but you're working overtime every day. You're working overtime on the weekend, and it's the same as Peter's overtime every day, overtime on the weekend. People are buying ice cream. It might not be from their predict like their normal chain of sales, but it's gone up somewhere else. I mean, I ate a lot of ice cream during uh, lockdown, uh, which <laughs> I'm paying for now. Yeah. Yep, guilty is charged. Yep. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, all through stage four, did miss a day, went to work every Mm. single day. The the production didn't slow down. Yeah. And just closing out, uh, do you have anything else that you'd like to share that you've been chatting with your members about or any final comments? No, I'd just like to say that the members of Peter's are absolutely amazing at the moment. The the way they're standing up to the company about just a low ball 5% pay increase over three years. And the fact they're going after the casuals, mm. um, like the way they're sticking after the casuals, it was really good. It's shown a lot of solidarity there.
all casuals、um, will give a lot of solidarity to any other casual worker because we know how tough it is. We've we've been through that rot, and a lot of us are still struggling coming out of it. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, during the pandemic, I think we all know how hard it was to be casual.、Mm. A lot of people got stood down.、Um, if you work two jobs, you could only work one. So it was tough for a lot of casuals, and that was no different to Peter's. A lot of casuals would work two jobs, then they had to go to one job. Still are.、Um, and even one casual at, at Peter's had worked there for twenty-two years as a casual, got stood down during stage four restrictions. <laughs> um, so it's not like they're showing any loyalty to their casuals, long term, short term, or anything. And and that's what's really got people a little bit irate as well. The lack of respect that management is showing the workers. Yeah, yeah. the The other thing is,、um, I know that you're probably not calling for a boycott of, or you're not even allowed to call for a boy boycott. But it might be interesting for people to realise that Peters is responsible for Drumstick, Maxi Bon, and Frosty Fruit when they're thinking about what they're buying from the、uh, shop. <laughs> well said. Yeah. That, well, that's it. Like、um, Peters Carrera sell a lot of ice cream and. People are free to make up their own minds on what they buy during this time where Peters have been a little bit unfair to their workers.、Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully people show the company that you know, regardless if you work there or not,、um, it's got to stop. It's enough is enough. Thanks, Dave. Thanks Thank for you, talking、Dave. to us. Thanks, Danny. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate your time.
Yeah, back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we're joined. We're going to be joined by Absara, who is part of a group of people who have been uh, diligently fighting the battle for refugees, and uh, in particular the people who have been in uh, uh, most recently at the uh, Park Ho- Park Hotel in Melbourne, right in Carlton. G'day, Absara. How are you? Hey there. Uh, how are you, Anne? Hi, Jordan. Yeah, I'm good. Now, it, let's start with uh, the uh, uh, gathering that you had down at uh, just there near Parliament, um, it would have been about yep. a week ago, um, where you were, you were told by bylaws officers, because you were taking it to uh, Dan Andrews' office, basically, you wanted Dan Andrews to say you didn't want uh, um, refugees being held in hotel prison in his state, and perhaps he could uh, have a word with uh, Morrison about it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, uh, uh, the thing is that we have to be very conscious about the fact that uh, the federal government can create uh, alternative places of detention anywhere in the country. These are what are called APOGs, without um, any um, state interference. So state, uh, they can be in any state jurisdiction without having to consult a state government and um, literally set up a hotel, because all they require for an APOD is hotels and hospitals um, that effectively will would allow them to bring refugees from offshore or even refugees locked in uh in detention uh, here in Australia in, uh, to stay in the hotels so that they can be transported between the hotel and hospitals. So, you know, we completely recognise that uh, Dan Andrews himself cannot um, do very much, but it's the leadership comes in different forms, which includes standing up and speaking for people who um, whose rights are being uh, abused. And in Victoria, we do have a Charter of Human Rights. Yes, the only one in any of the states of Australia. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And considering we have that, uh, our uh, Premier has remained deadly silent on this matter. Yeah, yeah, you can see you you can almost see why because it's actually a federal issue. And it really is Morrison and Dutton who are beating the drum. And they've been so clever at uh, trying to divert attention from them, except that uh, people who have been uh, uh, supporting refugees and raising the issue haven't been, uh, haven't been getting, letting them off the hook at all. Uh, and um, it, it would seem that uh, there's been some movement in regards to this. But before we go to that, yeah. tell us what happened on the day with the bylaws officers, for goodness sake. Yeah. So uh, uh, both myself and uh, my co-organiser turned up uh, in advance because we wanted to be able to liaise with the police officers and, you know, just set up and what have you. And when we turned up, the police officer was quite friendly but uh, because we handed over a run sheet and then uh, just out of the blue said to us that, uh, that we were... We have every right to protest. However, um, we will not be able to use amplifiers, to which both my co-organiser, Greta, and I were like, 
what are you talking about? <laughs> this is uh, new to us as uh, people who have organised numerous rallies around the city. And um, anyway, he, you know, stood his ground and we said, well, we're going to set up. I uh, would like you to uh, uh, organise for a City of Melbourne official to come and um, unpack this bylaw for us because we've never heard about anything about this before. And um, in the meantime, we set up and the, the, the City of Melbourne official did not turn up on time. So we told the police officers that we would get started and um, that we uh, got the rally off the ground and, uh, you know, the speakers got to speak and uh, what have you. And at the end of the rally, um, the police uh, brought the officer over and um, he proceeded to um, charge us for, uh, by this bylaw. So bylaw 5.7A, which is actually relating to busking and nothing to do with protests. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, uh, before we move on, I actually (laughs) did send uh, uh, you guys... uh, called on people to send a, a, um, a querying email to the city council, oh. to the mayor, and I actually did that. And there's a follow-up. Uh, they didn't hide. They sent a follow-up. Someone uh, someone called um, uh, Justin Harney, chief executive officer, sent a reply. Do you want to hear what he said? Firstly, the uh, thanks for your recent email. Firstly, the City of Melbourne acknowledges and supports the right of Victorian citizens to engage in public protest, and this is not in question. The right to protest is recognised in the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act 2006. The right to protest is not absolute and is balanced with other laws and other people's lawful use of public space and private property. The City of Melbourne endeavours in all situations to find the appropriate balance between the right to protest and other lawful rights of our citizens. Our local, <laughs> our local laws officers help to manage amenity for residents and businesses during protest activities by working with protest organisers and with Victorian police. In relation to the involvement of the City of Melbourne officers at a protest on Wednesday 13th of January at Treasury Place, we have not issued infringements and will not be doing so. That may be news to you, Absara. (laughs) The City of Melbourne will maintain our approach to balancing people's rights to protest with protecting public uh, amenity without recourse to issuing infringements. Our preferred outcome is always for all protest activity to be as respectful as possible of amenity of other city users, including avoiding excessive noise levels while still affording all citizens an appropriate ability to engage in public activity and demonstration. The level of noise deemed suitable for protest is determined with consideration of the ways in which other citizens use the space, including the number of complaints received from the public and the nature of the reported impacts the noise is having on their daily lives or livelihoods. That's very specific. The City of Melbourne will continue to seek a good balance between these interests and officers will always seek to work respectfully and collaboratively with protest organisers other members of the public and other parties such as Victoria Police. I must say that... I think think my my takeaway, if I can jump in real quick, is that there's some very specific wording in there to say that 
complaints about noise aren't actually necessary. Because I was, the whole question, the whole time I was, you know, listening to this story unfold, I was thinking, who complained besides, you know, the, the office itself? Well, they must have done it before the protest Yes, happened. yes, right? So <laughs> you have to wonder what's going on here, right? Yeah. Look, I just think that, um, I think this week's results uh, of uh, the release of uh, 46 men uh, kind of now makes a lot of sense because uh, Victoria Police was at the end of their tether and they were putting a lot of pressure on uh, the city of Melbourne to try and shut down the protest, both at Park Hotel and any protest that was happening out, like around the city. So I think that this, um, you know, um, they were getting to that breaking point and uh, I don't know if you know, but by Saturday they got quite violent as well and they um, started um, charging and hitting and... Oh, uh, really? Yes, um, they, yeah, hit, hit four women and um, arrested one man and um, tried to shut down a, 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 a music concert outside the hotel. Oh, really? That's very interesting because yes. I know that... The previous one, which I went to, there was a very strange standoff between the uh, police. There were a lot of police, and there were three horses. Oh, bring on the horses. <laughs> when, <laughs> whenever there's the horses, you think, oh, my God. They, do they want to have a picnic because they don't normally get out or something? <laughs> um, no, that's right. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, they were, they're using those tactics which is at the, on Saturday where it's gone. Uh, they were using the tactics that come to use, which is that, you know, they create that formation, that V formation, yeah. and then they charge at people. Yeah, they were doing using that same formation. So I just think that um, the optics of locking up the men um, in the hotel detention had gotten so bad that um, they were trying to use intimidation. And when that didn't work, and it actually backfired on them, because this... Well, what happened last Wednesday ended up becoming a massive um, uh, Blowout. campaign. Yeah, yeah, that's right. With a, you know the police accountability project and um, Mel's also getting involved as well. So it's kind of uh, it, yes, that's right. Victoria Police, you know, don't want um, the larger public to learn about some of the intimidatory tactics that they use. Mm. And um, I think, you know, so by, you know, by this week, I think both state government and federal government realised that they were... They um, were looking they foolish. Were, mm. Yes, and they were losing this, uh, very much losing this um, uh, public relations uh, battle that they were waging. Look, Apsara, we've we've probably got to head off real soon, but one last sort of question for you. When I yes. first saw the uh, developments regarding those, uh, the release of those refugees, yes. virtually every media article that I had read about it pitched it as a surprise release. And I think if something is surprising, that implies that it's contradictory to policy or maybe an existing government stance. Well, perhaps. they've all they've all been going to court, yes. and people have been getting off. Yes, out. absolutely. Yeah. So I was wondering what you made of that sort of remark and how the media spun this, the consequent story. Well, I think, first of all, uh, I, I think uh, it is a bit of a surprise to everyone that um, the government has released the uh, men, but actually we need to uh, turn that story around and it's, 
we have to really um, think about it from the perspective of the brave men who waged the campaign from inside the, their hotels. And um, the fact that we decided that in this campaign we were going to go beyond just uh, campaigning outside the hotel, you know, we were letterboxing um, in suburbs, well, in Carlton, we were letterboxing uh, in suburbs around the hotel. Um, you know, we were holding uh, rallies um, like at the Premier's office, outside the um, outside the um, home affairs. Um, you know, we were contacting media organisations. The refugees were talking to media. So it became this, you know, this really big campaign and quite grassroots campaign. And a lot of things people were doing spontaneously. There were sleepouts outside the hotel. There were daily protests. It was just a, a combination of things that, in the end, um, you know, the gut, there was just very little the government could do, and they were being um, pressured from all different directions. I, ca- I can't tell you how they would have been getting, um, being contacted by media organisations, everyday people, people living in the community, um, also, you know, businesses and um, businesses and residents uh, that were also annoyed about what was happening too. So both yes. people who were in support of the, of the refugees as well as um, people who were like, what are you doing? Because, you know, the, uh, the protesters and the, um, res- and, the, and the refugees are creating havoc in our neighbourhood. So it kind of was, they were getting pressure from every single direction, which I think... At the end of the day, we have to remember we can't control all forms of, um, uh, you know, activism. But I think it's really important to remember that when it's grassroots um, and it's organic, it can actually end up somehow working together to um, create like a pressure cooker, cooker environment. For you know, you know, Absara, this has been going on for two decades. I know that uh, this round, this round, and it's like a, a long boxing match. Mm. Yes. Uh, you know, we're talking about refugees who have been in there for eight years straight for no reason, basically mm. no reason at all. Yes. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about people who, you know, in their own countries were middle class. You know what I mean? Yes. Like it's, yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, so they know how the rules work. They're not socially incompetent, as it were. No. Um, uh, and the and the lawyers have been taking the people's cases to court and winning, right? So there's Very been true. these yep. really hard work going on. But yep. this release of these 46 people is only a three-week window, isn't it? It's not even... It's like all of the publicity stunts that Morrison and Dutton uh, are part of. They act as if uh, the message is they've been released... But actually, it's not entirely... I mean, yes, they can breathe fresh air, but it's not entirely true, is it? No, and I think that's where we need to remember this, um, you know, this fight continues. It doesn't end here. Because, as you've just said, what the men have been released on is an incredibly punitive um, uh, visa. It's called a a final departure bridging visa. Okay, now... If you actually read what that visa entails, the men can work, but they cannot study. They cannot get access to TAFE or university. Um, they do not get um, social security, and 
they can get access to Medicaid. Now, let's just even say uh, uh, someone needs to go onto a construction site. Let's just use something as simple as that. People need to get tickets to be able to go onto a construction site to start off with. You know? So what this also means is it uh, opens these men to huge levels of exploitation in our uh, work uh, in our workplaces because what kind of jobs can you get if you don't have, uh, let's say, an Australian qualification or an Australian-recognised qualification or a ticket? And um, so, again, this is the, the depravity of our government, is that they're willing to send these men into very exploitative workplaces, um, you know, just as a means of, again, continuing to punish them even once they've gained freedom. So... This campaign now needs to gear up, and the same tactics that we use, and I think we need to expand them further, is to actually put a pressure on the federal government to change the visa class so that the men can actually have permanency and there's a permanent pathway to citizenship. Thank you very much for talking to us, Zapsara. Thank you. Thank you to both of you again, and have a lovely day. You too. You too. And uh, just to tell you that uh, RAC, uh, Refugee Action Collective, uh, who have been um, set up in Lincoln Gardens, which is, or Lincoln Square, I think it's called, across Mm. from Park Hotel in Carlton, are going to have a meet at 1.30 there at Lincoln Park, or Lincoln Square, to discuss the legal aspects to it, because they've been doing these really interesting things. They've been having uh, people, uh, uh, sort of uh, study groups, effectively, where people are talking about the detail of the fights, uh, like the legal fights, and that's what they're going to talk about today. Fascinating. Yeah, Mm. and so that's at 1.30 today. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and... Jordan. Jordan. Yeah. (laughs) Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Now we're going to move hurriedly on. On uh, the 20th of uh, January, there was the uh, annual uh, memorial to Tanaminaway and Melboy Hinney, the first uh, people hung uh, in uh, Melbourne, um, uh, Aboriginal freedom fighters. And uh, I, uh, there was a whole, uh, and you, if you had been listening to 3CR and you'll be able to go back and listen to it, they uh, covered, we covered live the event. Um, but uh, I went there and had a little chat with uh, Joe. Uh, Toscano and a couple of other people about uh, why it was important. Uh, we might, we'll hear from those people and then we'll follow up with the, the fabulous uh, uh, Welcome to Country as a reminder of uh, why um, it's important. Can I just ask you a question before yeah. before we... Uh... Before this starts, um, I just wanted a little word for my Saturday listeners as to why it's so important to continue to commemorate the Tanua Minoway Malboyhini site. Well, it was our hope. When we were involved in this struggle to get this memorial up, not only is it the first 
memorial to the frontier wars in a major urban centre in this country. We were hoping that the 20th of January would become National Indigenous Freedom Fighters Day. Now we have Anzac Day where we pay our respects to those men and women who died mainly in foreign wars fighting for this country. We need a day in this country where across the nation, in every town, in every city, in every rural hamlet, we can pay our respects to those men and women and children whose blood is soaked into the earth, who paid the ultimate price for protecting their country, their language, their way of life, their families, their people. Things that Australians respect on Anzac Day but don't respect in other, other times of the year. So the 20th of January, in my opinion, should be National Indigenous Freedom Fighters Day and there should be thousands of ceremonies across this country. There's no point protesting on the 26th of January. We know it's Invasion Day. What we need is a positive reaffirmation of the sacrifices that were made resisting colonisation. So it's a bit about re-centering the uh, white-centric nature of this country, its culture? Well, it's about, uh, it's about bursting the manufactured reality that this country was not inhabited at the time of colonisation. It's about giving Australians the ability to pay their respects to the first Australians who lost their lives and continue to suffer because of that colonisation process. It's become beautiful, hasn't it? This is a very unusual monument. It is a beautiful, it is a beautiful monument. It is unusual. It's a, it's a playful swing, but at the same time, it denotes the hangman's noose and the hangman's scaffolding. So it's got many meanings to it. So the visual artists who won the uh, competition to erect uh, uh, the monument were uh, criticised in many parts but I felt it was a 21st century monument for a 21st century problem. But the, the trees have all grown, the yeah. shrubs have all grown, and I can hear the birds now. Well, that's what was the whole point. The whole point was to grow Victorian and Tasmanian uh, Indigenous plants, and that everyone here is a Victorian and Tasmanian Indigenous plants, to keep the dead company. Uh, you know, the um, I went to Tasmania the uh, where they've got some boards up to um, is it Tanaminaway? Uh, yeah, that yeah. would be northwest of Tasmania, that was a direct result of this campaign Really? Yes Fascinating mm. Yeah. Well, well, more strength to your own Well, it should be everybody around the nation you're standing on a piece of ground that has a black history find that history form an association or a group even if you can't convince your local council to erect a monument, hold a commemoration on the 20th of January for those people who died in that struggle. Thanks, Joe. A question about why you're here today and why it's important? The reason why I find this important is they are my ancestors. I am from Tasmania. Well, my family come from Tasmania as well as Yorta Yorta and other areas. So this is important to me and my people. Are you surprised? I mean, this is the only the first. Yeah, it's only the first, but um, yeah, it's the first time I'd ever heard of it, and I was surprised that it happened down here in Melbourne. Um, I always thought that it always happened on the mainland or in Flinders Island, but yeah, to 
find out that all this bad stuff, the first hangings that happened in Melbourne were done here by people from Tasmania, people that weren't from the mainland, it's pretty hard to fathom. Thank you. No, thank you. G'day Sue, how are you? I'm good. Great to see you. Yeah. yeah. Why is it important for you to be here today? Well, I think it's important to honour the freedom fighters um, from Aboriginal communities and uh, just to honour their death because they were very brave and courageous. Yeah, they were, certainly were. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Janet Gulpin. She's uh, here on behalf of the Bunarong Foundation. Uh, she'll be doing an acknowledgement to country on behalf of uh, Carolyn Briggs. It's a great honour to be here today and speak before you. So, Waminjika. Waminjika is the Bunwarang language word to come with purpose, which is very fitting considering that everything we do in the morning to sleeping in the evening is done with purpose. And today we've come here to commemorate the lives of Tana Minaway and Malboy Hina, whose lives were taken when they were so young and didn't get a chance to fulfil their future. So Womanjika to our beautiful home, the land of the two great bays. My name is Janet Galpin. I'm cousin to Parbanata, Dr. Carolyn Briggs AM, the elder of the Bunwarang and the Yalakut Wilhelm clan. And I'm here today representing her. Our lands extend from the Wilson's Promontory in the west to Werribee in the east, encompassing both of our beautiful bays. We are today meeting on the country of our ancestors and we pay our respect not just today but always to all our ancestors, those people who came before us. And all of you here today for this remembrance of Tanaminaway and Malboy Hena. Joseph's quite correct in saying that we should be having a national day to acknowledge the freedom fighters who fought in all states of this great country of ours to defend their rights to have land and to be as one with their land. So for all of you here today, we also acknowledge our neighbours, the Wurundjeri of the Woiwurrung, with whom we share many common boundaries. As a family member of the Bunwurrung, Melbourne's First Peoples, I'm pleased to welcome you here. And we're especially, excuse me, we're especially pleased to recognise the commitment that you've made here today in paying respect to the spirit of this land and to its first peoples. Through this, you show the willingness to honour sacred ground. Always was, always will be. Recognises and celebrates that First Nations people have occupied and cared for this continent for well over 65,000 years. We are spiritually and culturally connected to this country by thousands of generations of our ancestors. This country is in our DNA, and that is why connection to country is so important to our First Nations people. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were this country's first explorers, first navigators, first engineers, first farmers, first botanists, first scientists, first diplomats, and first astronomers and first artists. Australia also has the world's oldest oral stories. The First Peoples engraved the world's first maps and made the earliest paintings of ceremony and invented unique technologies. 
Our adaption and intimate knowledge of country enabled us to endure climate change, catastrophic droughts and rising sea levels. Always was, always will be, acknowledges that hundreds of nations and our cultures completely covered this continent. The very first footprints on this continent were those that belonged to our first peoples. But unfortunately, our first people are unknown to many who live in this land. As people of the continent, now known as Australia, while we may have all descended from different clans, different countries across the world and different language groups, we should all support our elders' rights for a voice to government, our rights for a treaty, which Victoria has started on that pathway, and for the truth-telling to be told about Australia's dark history. As I said earlier, the word Womanjika translates to come with purpose. But it's also a contract between the people as the custodians of this land and yourselves to ensure that the laws of Bunjil, our creator, are adhered to and to guarantee safe passage for those who ask. According to tradition, this land has always been protected by the creator Bunjil, who travels as an eagle, and our waterways are protected by Wa, who travels as a crow. Bunjil taught us the responsibility that we have for this land and to always welcome guests. But we have to ask all guests to commit to two promises that I will ask of you here today. And one is not to harm the land of Bunjil and two, to not harm the children of this beautiful land. And if we can commit to these two promises, we live in a better world. And this commitment was always made by dipping a bow in the waters and the spoken words, Womanjika. Thank you, everybody. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. And you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast. And as I promised, we got Max Ogden on the line. And uh, congratulations, Max, on your A Long View from the Left. Oh, thank you. You arrived at the ripe old age, which means that you're allowed to actually cogitate on your past. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I thought uh, we might actually uh, look at uh, some of the uh, elements that obviously are important to you. Uh, the idea of uni uh, strategic unionism. I, I put it out to you that you kind of... Uh, could uh, give my listeners some understanding of where you're coming from, especially as we're at a crossroads, I would say, in industrial relations and working people's uh, uh, protections are very limited at the moment. Yes, well, uh, that concept of strategic unionism uh, developed um, back in the mid-'80s uh, when the... Uh, a team of about a dozen Australian Union officials spent three weeks uh, studying uh, union movement in, in Norway, Sweden, Germany, the UK, um, and I, I think it might have been uh, 
Netherlands as well. And um, one of the things that they came away with, and something which I'd already uh, been thinking about, because I'd already been uh, into Sweden and Norway uh, some, somewhat earlier than that, um, what we were impressed by the, the those unions thinking several years ahead. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, uh, between five and 10 to 15 years uh, strategic setting to strategic objectives um, in order that what you did in the immediate would be contributing to what you wanted to gain in the in the longer term, and and so the end result of that particular exercise was the very fine document Australia reconstructed, which was endorsed unanimously by the 1987 uh, HGU Congress. And strategic unionism was was the sixth of the six major issues which that document covered. Uh, and, and it laid out uh, what strategic unionism uh, was about. And it, it, was, it was all about being uh, trying to make unions more democratic, moving towards, um, uh, at that stage, one of the issues was moving towards amalgamations of unions as part of that strategy uh, and to um, uh, have more industry-focused uh, uh, activity. And so and setting out some of those longer-term objectives. And so that's where, where the concept of the title and emerged from of, of strategic unionism. Having said that, um, I'm afraid uh, the, that document, which many of my colleagues both here and around the world uh, thought was one of the finest documents ever produced by a union movement, um, and, and it led to a number of achievements. Strategic unionism, unfortunately, never got the attention that it should have got in, in that document. And uh, well, well, you, you, well, Max, you you talk about how there's an obsession with uh, wages and conditions over and above having a, a a resilience plan. That's effectively it for unions, that's, isn't it? That's correct. I mean, the uh, we know from the last couple of hundred years that just pursuing wages and conditions. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment they aren't important. Clearly, they're the number one issue uh, for the union movement. But uh, just doing that alone without a broader vision and a bigger vision about wanting to change our society and make it more democratic, and particularly for workers, uh, uh, more democratic work practices and so on, uh, just doing those immediate issues of wages and conditions is is not adequate. In fact, I don't think it's adequate to save the union movement in the longer term either. It's got to be a much broader concept, which which takes in the concept of uh, strategic unionism. Now, uh, in um, a long view from the left, the book, you are of course able to look at uh, some uh, case studies that you were intimately involved in. And uh, you you have some interesting uh, examples of success where uh, people, workers and um, employers have actually collaborated in maintaining, uh, making a success out of a business. But often, yes. yeah, well, you talk about that first and then I've got my butt. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the attempts to, uh, and one thing that must be very clear about that, which I make that in the book, is that we're not talking here about 
the two sides agreeing on everything. We're talking about uh, a collective bargaining approach, uh, a negotiating approach on all issues, and exactly the same as we, we bargain about wages, that uh, we should also uh, bargain about every other issue, including uh, management prerogatives, so that uh, the members of the unions can intervene uh, in, in the managing process, both to make jobs better, uh, because a lot of people have suffered such alienation, because most people, unfortunately, work in jobs that are very uh, alienating and, and demeaning. Uh, so part of the process of intervening in management is to design and, and develop and have much better jobs for people, including more skills and the like. So it, it wasn't an issue of, um, of just collaborating in the sense that we all agree. It was very clear that it's an independent bargaining process. And again, we learned some of those ways of doing things from uh, a number of other countries, particularly Norway and Sweden, uh, which is exactly what they do. Uh, a very strong union movement, much stronger than ours, uh, and they use that power to intervene in management progress. Well, but, and this is my but. Uh, in the Australian cultural context, what's happened is that uh, the power relations between uh, of the boss class and the working class always seems to mean that the good uh, intentions of the working class uh, are either thoroughly exploited, like sucking the marrow out of bones, or... Uh, they take their bat and ball away and uh, the business collapses. You know, the power relations are too disparate. Uh, yes, in most working places, and particularly where there aren't, uh, where a union is, is not present, of course, uh, that is the case. But uh, I come back again to it's the process that's important. That is that the unions are independent and strong. So it's, it's not a case of... Um, uh, and I have to say, now and again, and not, it's not very often, you do come across a, uh, an employer who, who's quite interested in in working collaboratively with a union anyway, because they they can get... Because they're benefits. sensible? Well, Bigger big pardon? Because they're, they're sensible. sensible? Yeah, that's right. And one of the big problems we suffer in Australia, actually, is we have one of the world's worst management classes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, mm. And uh, we don't do enough about that. So... My position has always been that uh, manage, managing an enterprise is far too important to be left to managers, particularly mm. in Australia because they're so bad, and uh, and workers have to intervene. Now the the evidence quite strongly worldwide is that those where you have uh, the employer and the unions and and the, and the workers in, in the place working uh, or, or negotiating collaboratively is the way I would put it. Um, where the enterprise is usually much more successful, it's more likely to grow than, than collapse, uh, and it provides better jobs and better pay. There's lots of research now to show that. So it's also in, in the immediate interests of our members that we in, impact management. As I say, some some employers, some managers, very few, unfortunately, in Australia, uh, recognise that there's some value to be got out of that, most we have to impose it, and that means you need a very strong union movement. You can't do it with a weak union movement very successfully. The um, 
you've got a very interesting, I mean, I have to say your last chapter is really interesting to me and uh, you have a conversation about um, uh, the, the connection between the unions and the ALP and also you talk about uh, the issue of unions being able to uh, uh, flourish or actually hold their own during uh, disgustingly conservative, but not just conservative, ideologically driven, because conservatism and uh, ideologically driven right-wingers are not the same thing. So we're in the midst of... uh, Anyway, you talk about uh, how the unions should be standing on their own two feet, effectively. Yes, I I came to that conclusion a long time ago, um, that conclusion, um, that, uh, first of all, you know, I find uh, uh, the factions, uh, both right and left, pretty destructive. Uh, The left factions certainly a bit better than the right, but uh, the way they operate, it's not very democratic, and the, the members don't get much of a say. Um, despite the, people want to cl- cling to the history because the, the unions formed formed the Labor Party, but uh, if it's not working for the unions, then I I can't see the point. Now the current situation is that only unions only represent about fifteen percent of the workforce. Of that fifteen percent, uh, only about half of, of unions are actually affiliated to the Labor Party, which means you. It only represents seven or eight, maybe nine percent of work in unions that are affiliated, um, and which and the other big problem is that they, most unions don't have many members of, of the union in the Labor Party, uh, which means the influence that we have is sort of very top uh, top heavy. Uh, my argument is that the unions would be much better. Uh, not being affiliated to any political party, I might add, not just the Labor Party. I think unions should stand on their own two feet uh, always because you have to negotiate with whatever parties uh, are going around, also including the fact that nowadays many, many, many of our maybe 40 to 50% of union members vote conservative. Yeah, so, yeah, that's fascinating. That was a very fascinating uh, um, mm. uh, observation. Obsolete, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I put it. I, I put a condition on it that that um, uh, to stand on their own two feet, not be affiliated, but however, put a big effort into having far more of their members in in the Labor Party itself. So you have a genuine influence, not a top-down manipulative influence. Now, again, I I came to that conclusion particularly after looking at say the Norwegian and Swedish unions, who have many thousands of their members are actually in the Social Democrats or the Labor Party. Uh, and you'll go into a big workplace and you'll find there's a very substantial branch of the Labor Party or the Social Democrats in that workplace, which I find a very good idea. So you have a, a real strong uh, union work, working class base actually present in the party and very influential rather than the, the factional warlords who just a handful of people get together determine a whole lot of things and the members never get a say. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. The other thing, uh, I mean, there are a whole lot of interesting things in your book, but one of them is, because it's real, I mean, it's your life, basically, um, but uh, you do a great uh, analysis of uh, Taylorism and uh, Fordism, 
uh, in your book uh, and how it connects. And we were earlier in the program saying that uh, uh, Bezos from Amazon is a love ch- uh, Ford's love child because it's so similar to uh, that kind of alienation y- using sort of scientific method, method for alienation of workers and their work. Yes, absolutely. Um, very early in my uh, working life, uh, I, as a result of being in the Youth League and the Communist Party and so on and doing lots of reading, I got to understand uh, a lot more and read quite a lot about Taylorism and Fordism because, you know, as a, as a Peter and Turner, I initially used to wonder how it came about that management was so bad uh, and would make such often stupid decisions. And then I began to realise it was the division of labour and the Taylorism and Fordism that, uh, that were the key to it and that we would never uh, liberate work until we got rid of this incredibly artificial division of labour where the thinking is uh, divided up from the doing. And you're absolutely right, the, uh, and I think this is being missed by a lot of people, that the new technologies and the new systems, and are, in fact, some people are referring to them as digital Taylorism. In some cases, they're actually worse. Uh, and they yeah, I think so. Divide a job up into the most minute parts and then have people competing to, to um, bid for those. It's, it's kind of like concentration camp psychology, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and Taylorism was very damaging, and Fordism. Uh, I have to say, however, that for its period in history, it certainly contributed to uh, a huge, huge uh, increase in productivity and, and cutting costs. I mean, what Ford understood more than anybody was if he could cut the cost uh, low enough, his own workers would become uh, customers for his product. Now, that was quite new. Yeah, yeah, uh, but also uh, it was also another book that I've read just recently, a trilogy uh, by John Dos Passos, uh, written in the 1936, was talking about what you pointed out was that Taylor actually thought that the uh, productivity gains would then mean that workers would get higher wages. Yes, he did. What a fool. What a fool. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, he... He actually, he, he was pretty unhappy about poor, the outcome. Yeah, poor bloke. He thought, he thought workers would get a... But mind you, uh, with the Ford situation, you might recall, you read that uh, initially when he started all that extreme division of labour, the work was so awful that he couldn't get people to, to work there because it was, the jobs were so terrible. And that's when he had to invent or develop the $5 a day, uh, which was quite a, quite a wage then, uh, and then people came to work for him on that basis. Uh, but they wouldn't work previously. Not only because the wages were low, because the work... He, he was had low. such a poor view. He must have had... Oh, you really wouldn't have wanted to have had it in his mind, would you? Oh, well, he was a supporter of Hitler, of course. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Hitler had a picture of him in his office. Did you know that? Right. Yeah, something... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Max, I'm a I'm a fairly young worker, of course. I'm a professional, but I see the kind of um, assembly line production of uh, you know jobs being broke broken down into very minute tasks. I have experienced nothing but that in every single 
industry that I've been part of, um, whether it be teaching or retail or any sort of contract services, um, even civil services when I was briefly at Centrelink, it's all broken down. My question for you is, you've obviously seen this come to fruition. Do you think this is going to continue and become even more extrapolated? Is that possible? Um, Or is it, and, and if so, is that mostly through industrial automation or um, other specific technologies, or is it more to do with um, sort of uh, over over hiring? And um, yeah, pl- please, just um, your, your thoughts on the future of that, I suppose. Well, look, it'll only change if there's if there's a really massive intervention into it by the the unions and, and workers. It's not going to change of its own accord. Now, some companies, some managers. Uh, very few realised that uh, if you organise the work differently and you made it much more all-rounded and not have that division of labour, it actually uh, produces better outcomes, particularly particularly in terms of quality and so on. But uh, So we have to become really understanding of what makes for a good job. Now, um, the Australian Fred Emery uh, was a real... Uh, groundbreaker in this kind of stuff in the uh, 40s, 50s, uh, the 50s and 60s, and when he worked in uh, in Norway and Britain and elsewhere. And people like him and others have developed uh, a set of principles of, of what should make for a good job. And they should be then the, the um, used by the unions and, and workers on the job to negotiate for better jobs. But again, you got to be done on a very strong basis. Now, my experience, when we actually did that on a few occasions, we did succeed in making for better jobs, and uh, and, and our, our members liked it very much. However, there was the middle management, of course, were always opposed to it, uh, or not, well, nearly always. Uh, uh, some appreciated that it could be much better uh, doing it that way. But, of course, it, once you have that, like, moving into high-skilled work teams where you devolve most of the decision-making, there's not much of a role for middle management. So we know very clearly that they sabotaged on a few occasions. And unfortunately, uh, a number of union organisers who were opposed to anything like that would also help sabotage. Uh, and we, we had cases where we knew we got things up and running and then we heard from the workers later on that their local organiser had made sure that this couldn't be done because... The problem they have as well in that situation is that you start to get... Because workers know their workplace better than anybody else, and they start to have quite a say in the workplace. And the the organiser, at least to some extent, is sort of sidelined. And, uh, and of course, as, as well as that, some... And it didn't matter with right and left, in my experience, were quite ideologically opposed to workers doing that. But uh, in my experience, when we got it right... Uh, People really enjoyed um, one example, which I referred to, was in Newcastle uh, at Hexham. And, uh, but none of them survived. Now, it's terribly important. We did those. We made these breakthroughs. But over time, they were never sustained for various reasons. One so it's, uh, what, uh, I mean, we're coming to the end here, but uh, I reckon part of it is what you've done is you've proved that it's possible. It's just that we've got a system that uh, staggers under its own weight, really? In a sense, that's right. Uh, and, of course, as I, and I, as I say in the book, I'm, 
I think the Australian Union should be much more publicly critical of Australian management. They get away with murder. And so what happens is... Probably literally. Well, yeah, occupation health and safety and so on. So what happens is instead of uh, working with the workers to make for a more productive workplace, therefore uh, the opportunity to get higher wages arising from it, providing the unions there... They they not interested in making the workplace efficient. They're interested in uh, in just gouging more profit by taking the money away from workers uh, for their share. Nothing it's got nothing to do with productivity. In fact, I make the point, and you, your reading probably would tell you that management is not about efficiency. It's about control overwhelmingly, and control will always be the number one uh, uh, priority. Uh, if efficiency is going to be undertaken by a more democratic workplace. Um, my argument is that the so-called competition uh, between companies is not competition between the most efficient, it's a competition between the least inefficient, because they're all so bad. <laughs> yeah. We have to finish because yeah. we've literally got four minutes to go. Thanks very much for talking to us, Max. Thanks, Max. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, good on you. Uh, yeah, well, the book is A Long View from the Left. Very interesting. Uh, Bad Apple Press. And we really literally have to go. You had a few words to say, Jordan? Oh, yes. Um, one other thing I, I did forget to mention is um, I, I'd like to give a, uh, a very small uh, hat tip to uh, something I was engaging in on holidays, which I'd heard about, which was Praxis Planting, um, which I I was a little sceptical of of which at first, but um, it seems to be, you know, a very good theory overall, but it's very simple. All you do is um, just spend a little money on buying some um, uh, produce-bearing climbers, and particularly um, hardy climbers, so peas, beans, tomatoes, chocos even, and um, just as you go around your, your business, just plant them. And um, it's fascinating because um, I, I think that they have been these particular plants are so hardy but so necessary that if they do grow say around the side of a building um not only are you providing uh you know some more oxygen and some more food to those around you um it they're quite stubborn and as a you mean result you can't kill them yeah and and there's actually <laughs> there's actually a bit of an incentive from the community to keep them and I remember thinking about this in relation to things like community gardens. Because, yes, you can have organized work, but at the same time, you, you also want to get out and do have your own things if you can. Yeah. And, yeah, I must admit, in my, bit of my own place. planting, you reckon? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and when so much of our space is only very tiny little plots of dirt next to the side of a road, um, but there's, you know, an iron portcullis kind of waiting for a vine on it. Um, yeah. Get out there and do it. Absolutely. And it's so cheap. You just need a trowel and some seeds. And it was great fun over the holidays, and I'm probably going to keep going with it. Yeah, fantastic. Um, we're going to go out with uh, Australia, Burundi drummers, a, a different take on what it means to be Australia, uh, mm. Australian. And uh, don't forget that uh, 3CR's got uh, live broadcast of Invasion Day activities on Tuesday.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.